0: Sona, this was a very nice day today. It was. Because uh, over here at our headquarters, we got this great gift, Tillamook ice cream. I'm a monster for ice cream. I know you are too.
1: I want to take a bath in it and then I want to eat eat the eye in the eat the bath Wait, what? I want to like bathe in it, yeah. but then I want to eat it as I'm bathing
0: Yeah, it. yeah, that's a simple concept. You made it much more complicated. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> Fill a bathtub with Tillamook ice cream. I will get in it and then I will eat my way out. Yes, that's all okay, you need to do. okay. There we go.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah, they yeah. They have
0: so many great it's such good ice cream and they have so many great flavors. I mean, just off the top of my head, I I don't know. Birthday cake, caramel swirl, banana split, caramel toffee crunch, chocolate chip, chocolate, chocolate chip cookie <laughs> dough. I think there's butter pecan, cookies and cream, french vanilla, with chocolate peanut butter. Malted moose shake, I think, is one. I can't remember too well. Mounted huckleberry, Tillamook mudslide, Marionberry pie, monster cookie, old-fashioned vanilla, Rocky Road, Oregon dark cherry, waffle cone swirl, peppermint bark. I'm, I don't, I'm just going off memory here. But <laughs> holiday sugar cookie, orange and cream. Anyway, so many great <laughs> flavors. And uh, just incredible. You know, they they really put, and they come in family-sized cartons. Mm. Also, you're in good hands with the Tillamook brand. They make over 200 different dairy products and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. I'm gonna spell it for you. That's how much I care about this product. T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. <laughs> Noom uses the latest and proven behavioral science to empower people to take control of their health for good. Noom builds personal plans that can meet an individual's needs, takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Through a combination of psychology, technology, and human coaching, their platform has helped millions of users meet their personal health and wellness goals. I think a lot of intelligence has gone into the whole Noom system. They really think about how humans live, how they think, what their psychology is, and it's all been used to help people control their weight. So stay focused on what's important to you with the Noom psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's Noom, N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now, wherever books are sold.
2: My name is John Cleese, and I feel it is morally imperative to be Colonel O'Brien's friend.
3: Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walking blues, climb the fence, books and pens, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. We are be
0: friends. Hello, welcome to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Uh, this is a labor of love. I'm so thrilled to get to do this show. It's funny because it's a different kind of conversation I get to have with people. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of conversations that I've uh, been wanting to have for so long... Not always possible on the show when people are distracted by my uh, razor sharp cheekbones, oh, God. thick, luxuriant hair, hmm. chiseled chin. Uh, uh, it's a distraction, but yeah. here when my beauty cannot be seen, uh, conversation tends to blossom in a way that it can't. Hmm.
1: You well, know, they can see you. It doesn't seem to
0: phase them at all. You walk around with me all the time, Sona, yes. and you see me walk down the street, and people are like, "Fuck, that guy's hot." <laughs> And then they go, oh, it's Conan, right? Never Is that not? Once, never, never once. Never once?
1: Never once happened. <laughs> never once did anything even kind of like that happen. That's
0: strange, because I've paid so many people to do that, and they've <laughs> taken the money and then not done it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, joined, as always, by uh, Sonam of Hello. And our good friend and, uh, of course, expert producer, Matt Gorley. How are you, Matt? I'm good. How are you guys? Well, I'm good. I'm a little angry today. Mm. Yeah, you're riled. I am riled. And you can tell I've got my Irish up. <laughs> uh, <What? laughs> although genetically, my I guess my Irish is always up. Yeah. Uh, I am a little irritated by something, which is that the guest today mm-hmm. is an absolute legend. Unbelievable. Unbelievable legend uh, in, in comedy. And, uh, and of course we're talking about Mr. John Cleese and this is a big deal. And we always have the same engineer right? Colin. Yes, who is British. And Colin's this lovely guy, and he is here in the trenches. No matter who I'm talking to, if it's in early in the morning or late at night, there could be an earthquake, and Colin's here, and he's always rubbing things down with disinfectant to make yeah. sure there's no COVID, and he's always in the corner scrubbing out, out some piece of equipment, and he's, he's just, I, I don't know, he's yeah. like a Bob Cratchit, you know? He's always <laughs> there. He wears fingerless gloves, and he's working really hard and yeah. working his Fingers to the bone. He
1: tells me where the Twix is.
0: You can uh, find those like a truffle, you know. Like you can just dig down with your paws and get the Twix, no matter where we bury it. Come on, with <laughs> Any- my paws. What? what the hell? Well, paws slash hands. Anyway, <laughs>
3: do you remember also that Colin came when Jesse Eisenberg was locked out and came out of
0: the blue and saved the day? Yes. He
3: also sweeps the chimneys at Earwolf too. He does <laughs> yeah. That
0: but anyway, but Eisenberg shows up. And there's nobody here, but of course, Collins in his little cot in the back and he scurries out. <laughs> he scurries out and he's like, oh, sir, oh, Mr. Eisenberg, sir, hold please, hold, I'll open for ya. And he let him in and he said, can I make you some kippers? Can I make you an eel poi? And they, you know, of course, Eisenberg was like, I don't know why this Dickensian 19th century British guy is here, but okay. It's
3: because you reduce everybody to their common denominator. That's not
0: true. Anywho, this is the point. The point is Colin's always here. Now, I tell him the other day, hey, John Cleese is on. And he's like, oh my God, John Cleese. Oh, I love John Cleese. I grew up watching him on the telly and I'm going to be the one that connects him into the phone call with you. Me talking to the great John Cleese. And then I said to Colin, uh, I said, hey, how much is that that goose, that Christmas goose in the window? How much is that? And he went to, and I said, what day is it today, Colin? He went, today, Christmas Day. And I said, is that goose still in the window? Is it just, yes it is, sir. Here's a shilling. Go get that goose. <laughs> So anyway, all that's going on, and I'm so happy for Colin, and I come in this morning, Colin's not here. Nope. Suddenly there's this other guy here, Devin now it turns out Devin Devin what's your last name uh, Bryant oh Devin Bryant now Devin you outrank Colin is that right I, I run the entire company yes that's yes, correct you run <laughs> the whole company no no but you do outrank Colin I do not outrank well, Colin well wait a minute all I know is that you you're here and I'm like wait a minute why is Devin here right and then I remembered something there was one other time when you kicked Colin out and you took over the controls and that was when Eric Idle Eric Idle was here yeah and now <laughs> it occurs to me that whenever there's a Python guy on, you tell Colin who idolizes them, they're on his currency. (laughs) It's true. People, if you buy, if you want to buy like some ale in a pub, you give someone five Graham Chapmans and you can buy the ale. I find out that you tell him, hey Colin, run out and get some cigarettes. I'm handling it today. Is that what you do? Yeah, send him out for liquor and smokes. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's I don't know, it feels somehow wrong to me mm-hmm. that you're denying this guy who's here all the time the chance to talk to John Cleese so that you can be here and go, no, hello, Mr. Cleese, I'm Devin. <laughs> I run things here. I don't think I even interacted with him even Oh, trust word. me, yeah. <laughs> trust me. I came here and I saw you oh, yeah. trying to get him sign something over Zoom. <laughs> Yeah, he was trying to get an autograph over Zoom and he was trying to get him to feed it into an old fax machine (laughs) from the 80s. (laughs) And when Cleese couldn't do it, you were like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) So what did you do? How did you get rid of Colin? I'm curious.
3: Colin just asked if I wanted to
0: come in and do it today. That is not true. He knows I'm a that is not fan. true. Yes. This is Aww. First of all, that is not no.
3: That makes me think that Colin doesn't want to be here in the first place. I was just <laughs>
0: going to say it sounds like Colin just didn't want to be here. Oh yeah, yeah, didn't want to be here when a national treasure of the English people is here on the show? Well, can no, I ask- Of course he wanted to be here, but creepy Devin yeah, <laughs> said, "Oh, You know what, I've been pretty much taking it easy during COVID. (laughs) Checks are rolling in anyway. (laughs) As long as Conan keeps talking, I get paid. I've had (laughs) a good time. (laughs) I've rewatched all of Gossip Girl. Now I I get to, (laughs) oh yeah, Cleese, that would be a fun one. Hey Colin, I got an idea. Why don't you drive over to Encino, pick up a package for me, and don't come back.
1: Are you just upset you couldn't make fun of Colin in no. your British accent no. while John Cleese was on?
0: No, okay. not at all. I would never do that. I would never mock someone's British accent in front of John Cleese. I would do it when I'm not on the phone with John Cleese. This way, you'll find out I get to have my cake, eat it too, and shit it out. That's three. Why?
1: Wow. But
0: right now, Colin is somewhere with a tear that's mostly made of ham gravy because the British are a very unhealthy people. <laughs> a tear ra- climbing its way down his face and he's thinking, I oh, wish I had talked to Mr. Cleese, but Devin wanted to. Oh well, maybe when Michael Palin's on the show, then I'll get to talk to him. <laughs> Sorry, Devin, I'm just noticing that you're a bit of a I'm just curious, am I going to see your puss again when another big name rolls in Mm. through here? Possibly. Possibly. Well, Devin...
1: Yeah, Devin. <laughs>
0: I've decided you're a bad guy.
1: Yeah, <laughs> fuck fair. you, Devin. I'll take hey, it. Hey, take it easy, Sona. So- that was a little much.
0: I, yeah, yeah, I'm Sona, like your-
3: come on. Jesus.
0: <laughs> I'm Sona, like your was too- man. Sona, apologize to Devin. I'm sorry, yeah. Devin. Right. Hey, Devin, what? I'm sorry on behalf of Sona. That you was were, out of line. You were just yeah. shitting
1: on him for no, like 15 no, minutes. No, no. Mine
0: came from a place of truth. Yours was just sort of, yeah. Yours was just. Oh, yours
1: came from a place of truth. Well, yes. I'm here.
0: I'm the one that gets here earlier, often earlier than you. And I'm the one that has to wake up, Colin. And it's such a small. He has here At the podcast studio I know And he has that little hot plate And he always makes some tea And he says Would you like a little tea Only got one tea bag Only had one For about two years now But just keep reusing it you say And then he goes It's the posh posh Travelling knife The travelling knife for me And I go Don't oh sing God. this now And he goes First cabin captain's quarters, real company And I go Please don't do this song From Chitty Chitty Bang Bang And he goes To-da-star-ba-dum star Capital P-O-S-H and I go, well, that's very nice, Colin. Anyway.
1: Oh my God. You know, <laughs> let's get
0: into it. Cause, um, and I'm sorry. Hey, this one I dedicate to Colin. Colin, wherever you are right now in whatever pub, uh, squeezing the oil out of the newspaper that wraps your fish. Uh, this one's for you, old chum. And yes, in honor of you, I'll call it football and not soccer. Okay, we have a uh, very, uh, oh. It's on the bottom. A, oh, it's the bottom one that's yeah. really small. Thanks a lot. Colin would have fixed that. That's okay, Devin. I can read it. I can make it out. I brought Okay. A, no, okay. I brought opera glasses. I'm fine. <laughs> Lucky me. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, it's good. I can just make it out. I can just see. I brought these uh, these binoculars that I use when I'm out at sea to spot bergs on the horizon. Oh, that's handy. No, no, it's fine. I'm glad. Oh we we're, we're keeping this all in. Trust me. This is all going in. Oh,
1: you're awful. I'm
0: the awful slash greatest man that ever lived. <laughs> Those two words are often confused, although one of them is not just a word, it's a phrase. He's insane. Way too much coffee, oh way too God. early. my
1: God. Wow. I want I to mention something.
0: Our guest today- This is what I come into. Our guest today.
1: <laughs> our guest today- De-
0: Devin, I was on a roll. I know you you what? just jumped in. <laughs> yep. And so now you're really on my shit list. Yeah.
1: yeah fuck you, Devin. <laughs> yeah. Colin Hader. Know,
0: come on. And that one was deserved from someone. Oh, that was from A Place of Truth? Uh- <laughs> My guest today, I want to point out first that he is uh, not in studio because of COVID. And not only is he not in studio, he's on the island of Mustique. And he's talking to us, I think on a 1920s telephone, but um, that will not matter because this man is one of my heroes. He's uh, an absolute genius. He's of course a comedic legend, one of the founding members of the iconic comedy troupe, Monty Python. His new book, Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide is available now. And good Lord, do I love this book because it really concisely captures so much valuable thinking about creativity. And I really mean that. I'm honored this gentleman's with us today. Please welcome from the island of Mystique on a really crappy phone. John Cleese, welcome. We're here with John Cleese. I'm not a fan of his work. Never have been. <laughs> not sure why he's on the podcast. John, how are you? I'm fine, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> now we're on the right track, you know. Right, yes, uh, I yes, uh, <laughs> what? If you're gonna take that tone, I don't think we're gonna get anywhere. What? But, uh, this is not some assignment you've been given. This is a joyous <laughs> occasion for you. <laughs> It's been your lifelong dream to do a podcast with Conan O'Brien. Today is the realization of that dream, sir.
2: And I read today this little blurb about the show uh, that I'm now a leading thinker. Yeah, you are. Because I knew I was a comedy icon and a legend, but I'd never known I was a leading thinker. So I'm feeling very sort of (laughs) puffed up.
0: Well, you should feel puffed up. You've uh, written this wonderful book, John Cleese, it's called Creativity, A Short and cheerful guide i'm just reminding you in case you forgot <laughs> uh it is a spectacular book and i want to tell everyone listening it's a very short book but one of the most insightful books i've read Ooh. about creativity it's really quite lovely you touch on a number of things i've given a lot of thought to because i've been in the business of trying to be, this will sound like nothing to you, but for over 30 years, I've spent chunks of every day trying to think of something funny. And I have a thousand theories about how that process works. And I'm stunned that in such a short book, you were able to hit the nail on the head so many times. It's really lovely.
2: I could not be more happy because i tell you why I wanted to put everything into the book that you needed to know In order to become more creative. And uh, you know that phrase, I think it's uh, attributed to Mark Twain and lots of people about, I'm sorry this is such a long uh, letter, but I didn't have time to write a shorter one. You know? Yes, I always loved that. Well, I had time to write a shorter book.
0: Yes, you (laughs) had.
2: I've been thinking about this stuff for so long. I was able to put it together quite simply, but it does correspond pretty much does it what the book says to your own experience coming up with funny stuff?
0: Yes, assuming that what I come up with is funny. That's very kind of you. Uh <laughs> I will say this. One of the points you make in the book is that the human brain often operates on a subconscious level, and I and you talk about this in the book that when you when you say that people tend to think Oh, Freud, and sleeping with your mother and all the things I'm obsessed with. Uh, (laughs) But but what you're talking about is quite different. And I've noticed this many, many times. I hit my head against a wall for hours at a time uh, with a a legal pad in front of me or a, a, a pen and paper. I don't think I'm getting anywhere. Then I go to sleep. And when I wake up, I see things more clearly and I have ideas that didn't exist before. Yes. That's sort of the point of the book.
2: Yes. I couldn't agree with you more. It's almost embarrassing because we seem to have the same mind. You know what I mean? <laughs> what I realize now is the moment you feel under real pressure, you always go for what's derivative, what you've done before. That's what stereotypical thinking is, is for. It's to give you a quick result that doesn't uh, require any creativity.
0: Yes, it's, uh, I think of it as muscle memory. There's a great anecdote that I think will ring true for you and because it's so much of what you're talking about in your book. I believe it was Jack Warner, some stereotypical studio head of the 1940s. He was walking through the studio and he was walking past the writer's bungalows and he didn't hear any typewriters. <laughs> and he got angry and he said, You know, I want to fire all these people because they're not working. Every time I walk past those bungalows, I want to hear typewriters going because that is an uncreative person's concept of what thinking is, is, you know, constant movement. You have to hear, they liken having an idea to, it's work, and it should be like, I better hear those shovels moving that coal, as opposed to so much of writing is agonizing and wandering around and procrastinating and looking out the window and carving an apple and making an excuse to go buy a new desk because the one you have isn't right. There's thinking that's going on then, and it's, it's sort of denigrated, but it shouldn't be.
2: You're absolutely right. I could never figure out why it was in the morning that I couldn't just sit down and write. But I couldn't. It was like two poles of a magnet. I just couldn't just sit and write. So what I would do is I'd sort of uh, sharpen pencils or I'd tidy my desk or I'd make another cup of coffee or I'd just go and sort my socks or something like that. I thought, why can't I get straight down to writing? And I realized that all that sharpening of pencils was just beginning to get from one frame of mind into another, from the everyday yeah. frame of mind when you're just taking care of everything and making sure everything gets done. And there's nothing creative about that that doesn't need to be. But it's a different part of the brain that you use from the one that you do when you're, you're creating. And it takes a little time to get from one to the other.
0: There was a period of time in my 30s when if I didn't have an idea, I would go out and rent Randomly murder people, um, oh, people like you know an anonymous people, people that could never be traced back to me. And this was mostly in the Pacific North, Northwest, uh, Seattle, Tacoma, and I would I would kill people while killing while while strangling. Ideas would come to me, you know, that were that, and I, I found that to be. And I didn't know why I was doing it, and I later realized that uh, this was all part of the process. Oh, was, for me, it was
2: torturing small animals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're just, you're just having fun, uh, this but you're having fun, and then all of a sudden you think, "I know how I'm going to end that sketch." I have a <laughs> 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 but you know, going back to your Jack Warner' story, I've heard that before, and I think it's a wonderful example. But what I also heard, which amused me enormously, was that when the writers discovered what Warner was up to, they hired someone who sat in that block, writer's block where they used to work, and when they saw the, when he saw um Warner coming he set off an alarm and they'd all pull the sheets out of their typewriter that they were trying to write, put a blank sheet <laughs> in, just type like crazy for
0: two minutes. Just clack away. Just and, clack away for no reason.
2: And then the lookout would say, he's gone. <laughs> they could put yeah. the paper back in <laughs> yeah. and go on thinking. Yeah,
0: You know, it's funny too, uh, you discuss this in the book. And I, th- I think that when you're early in your career, you need to start with people that inspire you and you almost write in their style. But for me, I wrote sketches when I was in my late teens and I looked at them later on and they're Monty Python sketches. Um, uh, and I even have a clipped British accent when I would perform them for people. <laughs> and it's embarrassing to me now because I thought, well, no, I was just writing in the style of what I wanted. This was the most creative comedy that I had encountered, so I wanted to write in that style.
2: I wonder what it is. A lot of people, Americans, have said to me, um, people I've met after the show afterwards, and they, it's very touching. They sort of shake your hand. They say, thank you for making me laugh for 40 years. And there's literally a tear in their eye, and you can see that it's touched something with them. And I think oh, yeah. some people have a sense of the ridiculous. And I think American comedy is not very strong on the ridiculous.
0: I know exactly what you're talking about. I've always uh, knelt at the altar of silly. Uh, (laughs) I've never I've never wanted to be uh, trenchant. I've never wanted to be uh, particularly political. I've never wanted anyone to watch anything that I've done and come away from it and say, I really learned something or you've changed my point of view. (laughs) I just wanted to always to be silly. And I've actually had people from the UK over the years who've seen my sillier stuff say, Yeah, you don't really belong in America. (laughs) Look, I want you to come off this interview stupider than you were before.
2: Yeah, I'll do my best, Mr. (laughs) Cogden. But I have a question to ask you. Yes. If you go back in the history of American comedy, who Mm -hmm. actually...
0: Uh, I think you can't get sillier than the Marx Brothers. Yeah, I agree. The Marx Brothers, in their purest form, whether it's Night at the Opera uh, or Duck Soup, it is, and there's a very famous story about this. Um, They do Duck Soup, and of course, it comes out just around the time that Hitler is seizing power, and Duck Soup is a lot about people seizing power and taking control of a nation. And someone said to Groucho, this is a very you know, wonderful scathing of Nazi Germany and Hitler. And um, Groucho said, what are you talking about? We're just four Jews trying to get a laugh.
2: Uh, You've got to correct me on this, but I think the one of the funniest lines ever was, Wagner's music is much better than it sounds. I think- <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me say this. Mr. Cognant. Um, the, the, the funny thing about.
0: I think you just called me Mr. Cognant. <laughs> I, th- I think you just. Which means that by just speaking to me, I have made you stupider.
2: That's right. That's right. It's working. It's working.
0: It's really working. <laughs> If you're joining us just now, I'm turning John Cleese into a blithering (laughs) moron. Well, I had a question for you, which is in your book, you talk about this surprise at encountering the footlights and starting to work with people like Graham Chapman and starting to realize that this is something you could do. But the one thing that you don't talk about in the book that I think needs to be brought up is that you're one of my favorite physical comedians of all time. There was no way you could have discovered that at 19 or 20. You had to know that growing up.
2: No, I didn't. That's a strange thing. Um, But you're right, I do do some physical comedy very well. But I remember when I was 22, I looked at some of the people around me and I thought they were really much more talented than I was because I had no musical talent and my my attempts to... um, uh, dance made me look like an Oxford philosophy professor. You know, it was just embarrassing. <laughs> but I could play sports. And I think there's something about the sense of timing. You know how when you hit a forehand and the ball just things away because you hit it in the sweet spot and I had something like that when I was doing comedy I could time I could time a line and I thought that that's I honestly thought when I was about 22 I thought that's all I can do I've got good timing so the whole business of learning to move finally just sort of um, drifted towards me partly because Chapman was a wonderful mime and when we were on the floor rehearsing Um, He would do all sorts of things. He would do very funny impersonations of of animals. Um, And then he and I would, would be giraffes you see what I mean? And then we'd be ice skaters it taught me how to sort of slide my foot so that it looks. So I think being around him got me interested in it. And I had a certain, certain sort of rhythm, nothing to do with being able to dance, but a rhythm that enabled me to make the movements in a sort of very correct style. I could learn how to drive a golf ball or how to play an off-drive or how to play a backhand. And I think those two types of timing seem to kind of come together and help each other.
0: Some of my... The strongest favorite images next to Marx Brothers, up there with Marx Brothers, W.C. Fields, uh, you know, early comedy and the comedy of Peter Sellers is that your performance in Ministry of Silly Walks or uh, it, uh, th- when the famous German episode of uh, Don't Mention the War episode of Faulty Towers, your physical comedy is absolutely stunning and Completely absurd and and wild, and it's it's in my head right now. I don't. I think I think about it, it. It pops into my head once every two or three weeks, and it's very erotic when it does. I'll tell you. Oh
2: God! What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to love people who could do what they called eccentric mm-hmm. dancing. Yes, do you know what I mean. The word the three people called Wilson, Keppel, and Betty, and they used to be in our music hall in our vaudeville, and they would come on stage, and they had this sort of pit, sort of a sand pit, and they were dressed as Egyptians, and they would just get into the pit and just start um, making funny movements, sort of slightly like hieroglyphs. And I've seen people get completely hysterical watching them and they're not saying anything at all it's just the sheer absurdity of it but I was always drawn to people who could move in that wonderful eccentric way like Groucho Marx is a wonderful example and when you think how skillful W.C. Fields is I mean that uh, the sketch that he does at the pool table which he shot several times but I mean it's phenomenally skillful and terribly creative. You couldn't think of that, really. You'd only have to stumble across it when you are fooling around. So anybody who could do things that were physically clever attracted me. And I suppose I slowly learned how to do some of them.
0: You're very tall and I'm tall as well. And I always knew that because I was tall and lean, there was certain things that I could do that really popped in comedy. My physicality was kind of silly. I am very long, I have a very long legs, like a crane. And then I have a short, I have the torso of about a three-year-old girl, a very short torso. And because of that, (laughs) if I pull my pants up a little bit and use my long legs, uh, and I realized this is just, I could really make people laugh and it was just because of the body I was given. And I think there is a kind of tall person physical comedy that I'm sure I've borrowed a lot from you, which I just, watching you move very rapidly, very manically uh, uh, or maniacally, uh, just was something that if you had a smaller body, it would not have been as funny.
2: Well, what I love about that kind of stuff is that it's funny, as you were saying earlier, but it's hard to say exactly why. Some of the funniest things that, Python done like the fish slapping darts. I always make a joke that in in future, some poor uh, student of media studies will have to write an essay on what it means.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, it's when my least favorite conversation is when people want to dissect why something's funny, because I think, what's that famous line, uh, the only way to dissect something is to kill it. (laughs) But, you know, that's the problem in comedy is that... I don't want someone to explain to me why I have, and it's the same thing with music. Uh, There's just certain, obviously, songs that really move me. When something's really funny, I don't want it discussed too much. There's a certain amount of analysis that's kind of fun and helpful, and then you just got to stop and say, my God, that that gave me a lot of joy, and I'm not going to think about it anymore.
2: I think that's right. I think Sometimes it's fun to talk about it, provided you don't take it too seriously. And if you start trying to figure out principles which you then use when you are actually trying to write funny stuff, it just doesn't work. It has to come really from inside. And anything original, as it says in the book, comes from yeah. the unconscious. So it's by playing around without any particular aim that you hit hit on something. It was very silly. I mean, when Graham and I wrote the sketch about the man who had three buttocks, <laughs> It <laughs> doesn't mean anything, <laughs> but it's just so silly. I remember you were talking about people who want to try and find meaning in things. I remember coming off stage after a show one time, and Michael and I had just done the dead parrot sketch, mm. and this very um, intense young man said, can I, Mr. Please, may I ask you something? And I said, yes. He said, the parrot sketch. It is about the Vietnam War, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) By
0: the way, always my assumption. You got that, did you? Yes, I did. Yes, yes.
2: Some people thought it was about the charge of the Light Brigade, but it just shows
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I always got it. It's that reference at the end of the Tet Offensive that made me realize, oh, okay, it's the (laughs) Vietnam War.
2: (laughs) Incidentally, did you see President Trump was saying that the flu epidemic of 1918 had been instrumental in causing the end of the Second World War? Did you notice that?
0: Uh, (laughs) I I don't know what it's like for you on your island, but here in America... (laughs) The only way to survive is to tune some of this stuff out. So no, it's
2: up there with Wagner's music. Is much better than it sounds.
0: Yeah, it? <laughs> he he might be our best comedian right now working.
2: When he when he's talking, I do get hysterical with my laughter because it's so <laughs> wonderfully <and> meaningless.
0: <laughs> well, that's must be nice not to be a citizen here. Uh, <laughs> must be really fun. You know, I for have you.
2: daughters in America, so I don't. Say I don't have my moments of terror.
0: Sona, where else can you go surfing and skiing the same day, huh?
1: I don't know.
0: Or check out a world-class art museum and then camp at a dark sky sanctuary that night, huh? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Where else can you hike through Redwoods and then get a luxury spa treatment? Where? Well, you live there. California. (laughs) California, Sona. No matter where you go across the state, you'll find a way to play. I'm a California resident. So Sona, you are a lifelong California resident.
1: I'm a lifer. I love this place. This
0: is a beautiful state. Gorgeous. So many different, wonderful ecosystems in one state. You can hang out by a Palm Springs pool. You know, you can go whale watching. You can go hiking in Yosemite. You know, it's only a matter of time until your check engine light comes on, which could equal an expensive repair bill, and a new engine can cost up to six thousand dollars.
1: Don't I know it?
0: But this is why you need this product I'm about to mention right now, okay? Car Shield. Mm. Car Shield offers plans with low monthly rates that you can pay for your expensive repairs on your out of warranty car, truck, or SUV. It's so nice to have that protection of Car Shield. I know, I believe that's my belief. Some people have other beliefs, maybe religious beliefs. I think Car Shield. Car Shield plans provide protection on up to 5,000 major parts and systems, including items like transmission, Mm. engine, even your entertainment system. Mm. Just call Car Shield and choose the mechanic to do the work. Car Shield administrators will handle the rest and save you money. Look, I saw your car today. You've got a beautiful car, but you've got to haul your family around in this car. This is a vital piece of machinery for you. You need Car Shield.
1: I do. And, you know, I you know I don't take care of my cars very well. So CarShield, it would definitely come in.
0: You know, maybe. and also, with their A rating from the BBB, don't ask me, CarShield is the name you can trust to save you money on covered auto repairs. Now's the time to make the smart choice to protect yourself from the sky-high auto repair bills. Visit CarShield.com slash Conan. Save 20% today. Again, that's CarShield.com slash Conan to save 20%. Visit carshield.com slash Conan to lock in your price today. Conan Brian Needs a Friend is sponsored by ADT, introducing ADT Self-Setup, featuring everything from motion sensors to Google Nest Cam and the Nest doorbell with a battery or wired option. Your choice. Easily install the ADT self-setup security system at your convenience. You don't need heavy-duty tools. And if you do need help, ADT can provide virtual assistance along the way. Self-setup from ADT grows, moves, and adapts as your needs change. You can add more products at any time, and your system easily moves wherever life takes you. It also features Nest Cams that can tell the difference between a person, an animal, a vehicle, or with the Nest doorbell, even a package. These things are getting so smart. Plus, Every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24 7 professional monitoring. You can view video of an alarm event and verify or cancel an alarm with just one quick tap. Now, everyone can get trusted security from ADT installed your way with no long term contracts. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, well, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1 800 ADT ASAP. Google, Nest Cam, Nest Doorbell, and Nest Aware are all trademarks of Google LLC. You know, one of the things that I think, your your targets, you chose things that people hadn't really thought of as fertile comedy ground before, say, I don't know, oh, the crucifixion oh. of Christ. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and not other people were saying now, here we go.
2: We did think when we thought of doing Life of Brian, we do think this is relatively uncharted. <laughs> therapy,
0: I yeah. must admit. There's so much beautiful comedy moments in it. And I one of my favorites is when you as the as the Roman centurion find Brian writing, um, you know, ba- basically uh, anti-Roman graffiti on a wall. And then you think, okay, I, I would never have seen this turn coming in a million years. And I still think it's one of my, one of the most brilliant turns in comedy you're the heavy, you've caught him, he's, now he's screwed and you are very stern with him and you tell him that his Latin is wrong. (laughs) Then you spend 36 hours making, or all night, making him get it right, which means covering all of Rome with horrible graffiti. (laughs) And and that's had to have come from your education, which is oh my God, Latin declensions. Oh my God, this is the worst.
2: I like Latin, you see, because I think I was quite a scared little kid partly because my mother was fairly psychotic. And uh, I think what happened was that when I realized that you've got more marks for maths and Latin than anything else, I just figured out that I'd try and become good at those. And they're very simple, logical subjects. You just have to learn rules and apply them. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And most of the other mm-hmm. subjects just seemed to be rather out of control. And I, I was kind of almost scared of them. And that's why I got into Cambridge, I think, because I, down that, I went down the science route without anyone ever saying to me, that I had any creative ability at all, you know? For example, when I was 15, I was told to write an essay on the subject of time. And I wrote a good full-length essay on the fact that I had not had time to write the essay. Do you see what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) That makes people giggle. When I handed it in to the master, he just said to me, please, this isn't a proper essay. And I think that's exactly how the playfulness is quite kindly extracted from us while we we're at school.
0: Well, I think you found this too. I found it from thousands and thousands of hours of being in you know in front of audiences talking to people. And I found that the mistakes are golden. You can't there's a part of the brain that's like a schoolmaster that's saying yeah. that's shooting down ideas way too quickly just before they have a chance to grow, that's very rigid. And I know myself, that's a weakness of mine is that I am very judgmental with myself and with others. And sometimes I can kill an idea way too quickly because I have, uh, well, uh, there's no better word than judgmental, very judgmental, like, nope, that's no good. And I want to kill it rather than, no, 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 stop. Play with this idea for a minute. Yeah. let's see where it goes. If it's nothing, it's nothing. But
2: let go. Yeah, if it's nothing, it's nothing and it doesn't matter. And that's why I keep saying there's no when you're being creative before you bring your critical faculty in later to decide whether what you've come up with is any good. That, that's the later stage. But in the stage when you're just having fun, there's no such thing as a mistake any more than you would say to some children who were playing together, no, you got that wrong. That was a mistake.
0: Well, it's true in writer's rooms, as you know, people can go off on wild tangents. And one of my favorite places to be is in a writer's room and I'll go on a wild, very inappropriate tangent. We're all having a wonderful time and laughing. And then I think, well, we can't do that. And sometimes someone in the room says, "Well, wait a minute. Yes, some of it you can't do on television, but you know." And and I was just playing. I'm just playing, or the other writers were just playing. Yeah, yeah. That that's the strange thing is that it's it's learning to be less uh, uh, rigid about. Letting that part of you go. Yeah,
2: less less conventional. And you were reminded me then of something that I'd forgotten for many years. When we were writing, you see the Python team, Fibers, us, used to write <coughs> Excuse me for, for David Frost's show. And uh, we would often come up with Python ideas before Python even existed. And the producer director, a lovely guy called Jimmy Gilbert, would say, it's very funny, boys but they won't get it in Bradford, meaning a more <laughs> dull industrial town. And this became, oh, they would never get that in Bradford. And in fact, what we did was we, when we started to play, we kind of took the attitude, well, maybe there'll be somebody in Bradford. <laughs> <Do> you- <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's right. Well, in America, it's, it'll never play in Peoria. Which is-
2: <laughs> That's right. That's right.
0: <laughs> our, our Bradford is Peoria. And, um, Um, There is something about divorcing yourself from making you and your group of people that you're doing the comedy with delightfully happy and not worrying too much, how are people gonna feel about it? And, And that is another thing is you need to anesthetize the part of your brain that's so worried about what's everyone going to think. You need to almost put that part to sleep and say, "This, we love this, we absolutely love this and maybe we'll put this out there and it's not our business what people think of it.
2: Yes, I think that's right. Provided some people, enough people think it's funny. I mean, it's hard for anybody now to believe this, but when we started Monty Python in 1969, we had no idea what the viewing figure was. There was a thing called the Appreciation Index, and they'd ask a few people. and, And if that was high, it usually meant it was a good quality program. But all we ever wanted to do was to try to be funny. And we always hoped there'd be enough people out there to justify them giving us the money for the next series but it was as simple as that we never thought it was going to catch on. we knew it was quite strange and the head of the comedy department thought it was absolutely awful he he cornered the director in an elevator after about four shows and says what is this Monty Python thing is it supposed to be funny I think it's absolutely terrible that was the guy in charge of the department you know? <laughs> but we found that yeah. the whole way through and what I find now is with TV executives that the poor deluded creatures think they know what they're doing, you know, right, and they have no right, idea right. what they're doing. But the trouble is they think they do. And that's what gives them confidence. Whereas they never seem to go to anybody who's actually done something and made audiences laugh and say to them, do you think this will work? And of course, we are far better qualified to judge on those things than they are.
0: It's part of the system that a lot of people are paid to have opinions, and so they need, to ha- they need to have them.
2: Yes, that's right. I've got a big desk. I remember I had an experience with Disney. I had co-written a film with a lovely guy called Kurt D'Amico, and it was based on a Roald Dahl story called The Twits*. So we were very happy with the first draft, and the woman, I think her name was Nina Jacobson, and said to us, you're 70, 75% of the way here. It, we, we don't get first drafts like this. And we got six notes, and we went away and rewrote it. And when we got back, they were looking for new writers. And <laughs> <laughs> we really were astonished. And I went in, and see, she said, well, you ignored some notes, we said. "As Well, we did ignore the notes, but I didn't know they'd come from her. I thought they'd come from the producers, who had no idea what they were talking about. So we ignored them completely. And she said, well, I want this done and this done and this done and this done and i said to her absolutely honestly i said i don't think i can do that and she said well why not and i said well i don't think i know how to make it worse (laughs) I'd be sitting there making it better That's not what you want
0: Well, I'm sure that meeting ended very nicely
2: And they brought some more writers in And it's now somewhere in the vaults of working title It was, of course, never made And it's probably the funniest thing that Kirk and I ever wrote together You know,
0: it's it's fantastic that you talk about Whenever you have a meeting in Los Angeles where someone says "We love it," this is fantastic. I can't imagine this being any better. You know, you're screwed. <laughs> you know you're absolutely <laughs> well, screwed. What's the
2: best thing they can say? What's the most encouraging thing they can say? Uh,
0: probably, uh, and it's something that rings of truth would ah. be would be fantastic. You know, if if you if I heard a little bit of, and also you know, encouragement mixed. With uh, some kind of because I've always trust. I really listen to people when when they uh, have a nuanced view. I think I you mm. know w- whenever someone's just like this is boffo. I love it. Yeah. I, I, I th- and I think that's a great line. I think Nathaniel. West, it might be. I'm, I hope I'm not misquoting, but it might be Nathaniel West in uh, Day of the Locust. But he said L A. is. I think he said L A. is the only town where you can die of encouragement. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Everybody's clapping you on the back and telling you you're the best. And then you realize your career's over (laughs) and no one told you.
2: That's funny.
0: You know, I did want to ask you, uh, we're going to wrap this up because I, but you had a wonderful definition of humor that you came across uh, and it's by the uh, philosopher Henri Bergson. Uh, I can read it to you Uh, because I know after talking to me for 45 minutes, you probably have very little gray matter left.
2: uh, Uh, (laughs) uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've reduced him to a puddle of pudding. He's done,
2: (laughs) he's done. (laughs) Come on, Kill Cognon. I want to know about Henry (laughs) Bickman. (laughs)
0: <laughs> my dream is John Cleese calling me Cognon for the rest of my life. Here we go. He said, defined humor as a social sanction against inflexible behavior. Yeah. And I love that. I absolutely love that. And I think your career and your work, I mean, you've, you've followed through on that quest very nicely. The, uh, I want to make sure I, I tell people this, uh, this book, John Cleese, Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide is uh, the best concise I would say discussion of what creativity is, how it works and how it can be applied. This is not a book for comedy writing. That's the other thing I love about it. It's just about being creative. And the one thing I wanted to mention that's been important to me all my life and that you brought up in this book and it blew me away, you say fear and anxiety at the outset, getting nervous is sadly an important ingredient and I have always found that to be true. I've, I've had tr- struggles with anxiety, but when I need to write a speech or I need to write a sketch or I need to write something important, there's a, a nervousness that I feel and it actually turns into fuel that helps me sit
2: down and get to work. It's a form of energy, isn't it? That if you don't let that overcome you and if you think that this is, you know, this is because I don't know if I can do it today. Somebody told me once the Claude Money. Sorry, Monet, Claude Monet, the French impression. Claude Monet. (laughs) When he was about 80, he'd go out to paint and his hand would shake because he wasn't sure if he could do it today. When you're doing anything creative, you don't know if it's going to happen today you see what I mean? If you're an actor, you fall back on technique, even though you're not feeling much, your technique is good enough, the audience doesn't notice. But if you're trying to come up with something in the writing realm, it may not happen. You may have the blank sheet of paper at the end of the day. The important thing is to know that's part of the routine. Some days it comes, some days it does. not Just sit there. But don't take anxiety too seriously, because it's because you cannot guarantee that you can do it on any one given day.
0: There's also something neurological. We don't understand it, but Hemingway used to say, I've got about two good hours in me a day and you, you have to, this isn't fun for people to hear, but you have to give this creative process that you describe in the book time. So if you leave it to the very last minute, uh, the chances that you're going to just come up with everything you need is probably nil.
2: The only trouble is some people get confused about this because they say if it wasn't for deadlines, I'd never write anything. And what I want to say, yes, but you're writing it in your head before you ever sit down at the desk with your pencil. That's, that's how Noel Coward wrote one of his best plays in two days because he'd been thinking about it for a year. So the right, creative process is right. Going on and on Just sometimes You've got to say To a writer Now you have to put it down Because he simply Has to get it done By a certain day You see what I mean At that point right. He's he putting stuff Down there Which is the best stuff that his unconscious Has accumulated Over the, like, the previous Few months or weeks But it's that's It's not the deadline That's causing The creativity It's the deadline is causing The creativity To actually put down On the paper That was rather good I thought that
0: That was very good I found that When I was murdered murdering. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes I would be murdering and realizing I haven't given this any thought. And then I realized, no, I stalked this person for a while. You know, (laughs) I thought about it. I thought about where to trap them. Yeah.
2: You will. You remember
0: stalking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it was was a little subconscious, but I was, you know, driving around in my van and looking for the people. And, and then when the murder happened, it was the culmination of all that thought.
2: (laughs) Yes. But but, what what I don't get is when you, when these ideas would pop in your head, when you were murdering mm-hmm. people, it wasn't. <laughs> yes, it wasn't while you were actually stabbing them. Surely, no, 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 no,
0: <laughs> no. While I was stalking, uh, ideas were accumulating about how. And then, yes, we all. I think people are too obsessed with the part of murder where it's the stabbing. And I've always found that to be myself the boring part. It's that's just <laughs> yeah. you stab them, and then the blood comes out, and then they're they're inanimate, and you run away. Uh, but yes, for me, it was the thinking of it. Yeah. It was the stalking and the thinking and all the time I put into it.
2: Yeah, I think that's it. It's the stalking. And when I was torturing the small animals, (laughs) I would think think, that squeak reminds me of a song. Yeah. Oh
1: my God.
0: Well, the uh, the book, uh, John Cleese Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide, and the subtitle is How to Murder. Uh, it's, it's, It's... is out there and uh, just get this book. And uh, John Cleese, I will say this, if someone had told me at any point in my life that I would be talking to you about comedy, uh, I'd have said, you're an idiot, and then shot myself. Um, (laughs) An irrational reaction, but uh, this is a, a dream come true. And I'm really delighted and- I can't wait to join you on your island uh, and and spend time with you.
2: Well you know, you, you just come out here, Kurt, and then you can tell me all about those wonderful Sherlock Holmes stories of yours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, again there's some confusion. All right, John Cleese, thank you so much, sir. That was a joy.
2: Yeah, it was fun, wasn't it?
0: We all sometimes have issues or things we need to talk about, get off our chest. I have that all the time. Don't you, Sona? I do. Yeah. And we need people to talk to. And we carry around different stressors. We carry big stressors. We carry small stressors. Uh, I was raised in a culture where you're supposed to kind of bottle it up. And I've learned over time that that's not the best thing to do. If you do let things rattle around in there for a while without talking it out, it can affect your life very negatively. Well, therapy is a safe space where you can get things off your chest, figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. BetterHelp is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. A lot of people have a barrier towards getting therapy because they think, well, I don't know, I've got to find the person, talk to them. What if I, it's not a good match? I, then it's awkward. None of that. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/conan today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com/conan. <laughs>
3: we don't try to refer to things visually necessarily on here, but I think that this one is a good reason to, sometimes people send in pictures of of people that look like you, you know, Conan, like whether it's Tilda
0: Swinton or the, is it the Norwegian president? Finnish. Finland. Whenever people find someone I look like, it tends to be either um, a a woman. Uh-huh. It's really weird because it's all over the map, but it's either a very attractive woman or um, the character from the movie Mask. Chucky,
1: oh, come on. So it's like, oh,
0: you do not look like Rocky Dennis.
3: Of
1: course, you would know the name. Sorry, (laughs) Matt, that was so mean. Hey, look,
0: I'm proud. I know you should be. That was well, my hair grew really long during COVID and someone wrote in online, you look like the kid from mass.
1: Oh man. <laughs> and you do not. At least the women that they're comparing you to are beautiful women. I think yeah.
0: as a woman, I'm striking. Yeah. I think as a man, I'm I'm okay. I think as a woman, I'm a stunner.
3: Well, how nice. would you feel about being compared to a mailbox? I'm be okay with that. This is one of the most striking resemblances I've ever seen. And we'll put a picture of this up on the Instagram. It is- a dilapidated envelope stuck in the red flag of a mailbox that looks like you I'm gonna Let's share take my screen. A look. In there.
0: Wait, what? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I see it. Wait, what? I see it. That's the ha- See, it's the flag is down. There's an envelope in there that's sort of moldered, so you can see. The curl on the front of the hair. And then you can see see that. And then there's a sharp chin.
1: Sharp chin. I mean,
0: like a, that's the jawline down there.
3: Yeah, he's facing towards the the curl, the round part. Ah. Uh. Sona's not seeing it. You're not seeing it? This is like Jesus in toast. I feel like this is super clear and kind of divine. Okay. This is from a Twitter user named um, Eric Locke.
0: I saw it right away, but Sona Sona's not seeing it.
1: That's your profile. Oh, come on. What? Don't
0: you see it? It's is this a bit? Are you guys no. doing a no. bit? No, that look. See the the. That's the curl in the front. The
1: front is your hair curl. Your yeah. pump? Yeah. Okay.
0: And then uh, below that, you sort of see. I mean, yes, it's a mangled mess underneath. Um,
3: this is like the white dress, blue dress thing. Maybe you. I know see you this. Is you know what? Crazy. I think.
0: Yeah, I think you'll either see it or you won't. I do think that's interesting. I think this is going to be one of those things where you see it or you don't. I, I saw it, and I see it immediately. You see it, and Gourley sees it immediately. uh, Sona still doesn't see it.
1: It, Are we looking at that mangled part on top or the actual bottom part? No,
0: no, no. The hair is the top. Okay. It's I, like a three-quarter profile. Sona's freaking out. She doesn't see it. Wait, yeah. are
1: these your eyes?
0: I guess that's an eye. Well, I mean, that's the, where the f- it's a little messed up. Yeah, the face is kind
3: of impressionistic. There's maybe a nose in the middle there, but the hair right. and the profile and the silhouette. We'll put this on Team Coco podcast
0: Instagram. It's as if, I mean, this the face- a
1: sideburn. Yeah,
0: you gotta tune yes. out the face. It's as if- Um, I was in a terrible accident and then Picasso painted me. Yeah.
2: That's that's, that's, (laughs)
0: that's what it, I think, (laughs) you gotta let the face go. It's more just what it suggests. And I think it suggests- Right or here. it's like if you were in the show Max Headroom. Maybe. I don't think anyone listening is going to get that reference. Um, it, all right. Take it easy. Okay. Oh, I'm beginning sorry. to
1: see it now. I don't, um, I would be nice if it had a mouth, but I get it. It's the pomp <laughs> with the sideburn, eyes, nose. I get it.
0: You know what? I get it, but I'm not sure it's divine.
1: Divine is also usually attributed to like deities. Yeah, you know, and I was like being a, ironic. Yeah, like a Jesus or a Virgin Mary crying or something, you know.
0: I was a virgin for a very long time, and it made me cry. <laughs> so you're
1: you're saying you and the Virgin Mary are the same? <laughs> well,
0: no, there are similarities. That's all. <laughs> oh God. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think we're gonna have to wait and see what people online say. Yeah. You know, do you see it? Do you not see it? Maybe we could do a Twitter poll too, or like a Team Coco Instagram It's not flattering. I will say
3: that. No, Um, but it's not meant to be. It's not, it's just your, you know, it's a a resemblance,
0: it's an essence. Yeah, someone saw that, right. If that were recovered millions of years from now by an archeologist, it would suggest the figure that was Conan. Do you know what I mean?
1: Oh, you you saying that archaeologists a million years from now you say whatever
0: they'll know who I they'll was. They'll know. Okay, the clips will play forever.
1: Uh huh. And I'll
0: probably be on coinage. So.
1: Oh my God! First you compare yourself to the Virgin Mary. Now you're saying you're going to be on. Coins. I had a friend.
0: I had a friend that was so nerdy that I remember being at a someone's backyard party once, and this is in high school, and he took out a, hand, a handful of coins and he was just dropping them randomly on the lawn at this high school outdoor party. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm dropping these coins. It will confuse future archeologists who will think this was a place of business.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus, like, oh my what? God. Oh my God. You're playing God. a prank
0: that depends on archeologists excavating this place 800,000 years from now. And finding these coins, <laughs> and then saying this was a place of business when they just excavated a Seven Eleven down the street. And <laughs>
1: this was your friend.
0: Very good friend. Oh, still a friend. Oh. Still a friend. Hmm. Huh? Yeah, yeah. It's you well, know what it is. is he it's, weird. It's, it's the no, he's not. Oh. I mean, he was hanging out with me in high school, so he was mm. different. I always, oh. <laughs> I always ran with a different crowd. We were very imaginative, and we liked to confuse. We like to play pranks where the aha moment, the I gotcha moment played out, you know, to 50,000 years in the future.
1: Oh, okay. Everyone loves a, a bit where you never see the payoff.
0: <laughs> Sometimes I write letters and, cause I, you know how I still write letters and I type them out and send yeah. them to people. Sometimes I backdate them a few years just to confuse biographers.
1: Okay, that's, <laughs> wow.
3: I hope when that when your head's on a coin that they use this image for the coin.
0: Yeah. Maybe that'll be the image they use. I don't know. We'll see. You know, we'll see, Garly. As uh, hey, as long as they're talking about me, it's good publicity. Trump taught me that. Oh, you don't look like this thing literally. No, I know. I understand. I I always went for a certain <clears throat> easily to depict look. You know, yeah. the sharp cheekbones, the um, iconic Roman nose, the Paul Newman eyes. Um, wow. Huh? Wait, I'm not describing me. I'm descri- <laughs> <laughs> describing. Describing this guy. I it's cool
1: I that someone sees a mailbox and it, and sees you. That means that you're really in in people's minds a lot. People yeah, think sure. about you. Okay, yeah. I don't know. I'm trying. <laughs>
3: Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, with Sonam Obsession and Conan O'Brien as himself. Produced by me, Matt Gourley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Joanna Solitaroff, and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon at Earwolf. Theme song by The White Stripes. Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, and our associate talent producer is Jennifer Samples. The show is engineered by Will Beckton.
2: The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix.
1: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley.